Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. I am so excited for this week's Ask the Expert with Dr. Adi Jaffe. Adi is a PhD and a number one bestselling author, a nationally recognized expert on mental health addiction, relationships, and shame. He lectured in the UCLA psychology department for the better part of a decade and was the executive director and co-founder of one of the most progressive mental health treatment facilities in the country until he started Ignited. Dr. Jaffe, through Ignited, is changing the way people think about and deal with mental health issues. His passion in the role of shame-destroying lives is the philosophy behind Ignited Recovery, and it's aimed to greatly reduce the stigma of addiction and mental health. Dr. Jaffe attended UCLA, graduating with a BA in psychology. It was during his undergraduate career that Adi began struggling with drug issues himself, eventually leading to a four-year hiatus from studies and into the Los Angeles drug-dealing world, where he became quite successful. During that period of his life, Adi's days look more like a reenactment of a beatnik novel or Quentin Tarantino film than the life of an upper-middle-class suburban kid. Following a SWAT team arrest in his apartment, an extended court case, and a year-long jail sentence, Adi began rebuilding his life. This eventually led to his attainment of a PhD from UCLA's top-tier rated doctoral program in psychology, where he graduated with honors. Even before he graduated, Dr. Jaffe's name had become known through his online and academic writing. His views on addiction and his research on the topic have been published in dozens of journals and online publications, and he has appeared on numerous television shows, documentaries, discussing current topics in addiction and the problem of addiction as a whole. Dr. Jaffe now writes a blog on Psychology Today and several other online and print sources. His goal is to bring the latest knowledge about addiction to the people who could benefit from it most, those who are suffering because of it. His writing combines personal experience with a decade's worth of fine detail research regarding the mechanisms involved in the addictive process. Dr. Jaffe has been featured in CNN, Huffington Post, Bustle, Los Angeles Times, and KTLA. Woo! And Dr. Jaffe is a really, really impressive human being, but he is also has an incredible personality, just really fun guy. And as you'll hear in the episode, very connected to his emotions and his passion, which makes it super fun to talk to him. He is also very controversial in the treatment, the addiction treatment field world because he talks about moderation and harm reduction. And I wanted to say a little bit about that before we jump in. So we're going to talk in this episode about Adi's belief system around helping people and abstinence not being the gatekeeper to recovery. And What I want to make clear is that if you are sober, if you are abstinent, and as that is working for you, our conversation about moderation is not aimed towards you. Our conversation about moderation and abstinence or lack thereof is talking about the people who don't go to treatment because abstinence is an early requirement. The people who abstinence is the thing that stops them from seeking help, where Instead of going to an abstinence-based treatment, they continue to use, they would do nothing else. So really what we're talking about is saving the lives of the people for whom abstinence is this huge block. And if they could cross over that, they might be able to get help. 
And Adi has some really incredible ideas around that. And he talks about them. Uh, We talk about his book and I push him on some topics around that. And uh, we just had a really lovely, intense, intimate conversation that was incredibly informative. And I hope that it is informative for you around the topic of harm reduction and what is available to people. I do want to express here as sort of a disclaimer that what has worked for me is abstinence-based recovery and many people that I know and moderation is not something that would have worked for me. So it is not something that I typically talk about. But as Adi and I talk about, I am here to save lives and help people on their journey. And the same way that Lion Rock started community meetings where people can be in any type of recovery, however they define it, it's really important to me that people know that there are lots of ways for people to get to their healing. So again, this is not permission to go drink. So if you hear that, please call your sponsor or email us. But Dr. Jaffe is doing some really cool stuff at Ignited. And I think it's an important conversation to have. So woo! after all that, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Episode 96 of Ask the Expert. I give you Dr. Adi Jaffe. Let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Adi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. Doing well. So we start in season three, we're starting off each episode with the worst haircut picture that you can find just as like icebreaker. And yeah. And so um, you're scared. Yeah. So I have this picture of you and you look just like Eminem. Oh, you have an Eminem. Marshall Mathers. Yeah. yeah, Marshall Mathers. What? Tell me about. So we post the picture on our Instagram so listeners can go check it oh, out. Perfect, perfect. So tell me about this picture of you that I'm looking at. It looks like you and maybe your dad. Yep. And you're smoking a cigarette and you look like Marshall Math. Marshall Mathers, that's like back then. What What's going on? I do. In that? I do. So that actually, by the way, the weird thing about that whole thing is it happened right around 2000. So literally, like when Eminem was coming up. Oh, and- yeah. And I'm sorry, Em, I'm going to put you on blast here, but um, I didn't steal Eminem's haircut. I oh. I rocked like a I rocked a bleach Caesar cut since like yeah. high school, and then in true '90s rolling into early 2000s style, let the tips grow out, which is you know, it just it's stylistically appropriate, is what it is. And but here's the funny thing about that picture: I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. So. A friend of mine used to shoot for Herb Magazine, URB Magazine, and they did rap and dance electronica back in the day. And so one day she was doing a photo shoot for us and she left a CD or I think it might have been a zip drive back in the days that zip drives were things. Mm-hmm, and, um, mm-hmm. She left it in my recording studio because I was actually doing music as well. And um, I looked at it and there's this picture of me looking out the shower curtain. And I'm like, was I that messed up? 
Then I don't remember her taking like we were in my studio shooting. Did we go to my house and like take a shower? This didn't make sense. So I, I literally I texted her at the time. I was like, what? What is this? When did we take this picture? She's like, oh, that's not you. That's this rapper Eminem. Stop. I didn't even recognize myself as. Wow. The, like, we actually looked a lot alike back then. Yeah, um, no, you do. It's kind of insane. And then so he did a big um, spread in Herb right during that time. And after that became a huge deal. But I'd never even heard of Marshall, Marshall Mathers until that picture. So it was really funny. That's funny. Well, it does. You do like it really does look like him. Uh, facial. You guys don't look alike now. Um, no, but no. But, I think I, like, uh, M's aged more gracefully. It's all, I mean, it's all that money. Oh. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know no. about that. But He's like two years older than I am. We're literally almost the exact same age. It's kind of crazy. I've never met so, the guy, by the way, for anybody who's not, for whom it's not clear. <laughs> Marshall yeah. Mathers and I have literally never been in the same room at the same time. So <laughs> total coincidence beginning to end. Uh, what, so what's going on in this picture? So that was at the height of my meth addiction. Um, okay. I weigh about 123, 124 pounds in that picture. And just for reference, this is me at 166 pounds. So okay. a wow. good 40 pounds lighter. How tall? Um, I'm 5'10". Okay. So, you know, 124 is unhealthily small. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're ready, you're ready for the runway. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it could be really good maybe for like uh, the derelict look from the Zoolander. Um, totally. Trilogy. Totally. It was not a good look. Now, the weird thing about... So I barely have any picture from my drug using days. Like... So much so that a lot of people forever, maybe even to this day, think that I'm lying about how bad my addiction was because of the way that my recovery has played out. And I wasn't, I just wasn't taking a lot of snapshots of myself smoking meth <laughs> in the studio totally. all day. You know, like it just wasn't, totally. this wasn't the vibe. It just wasn't You're the like, vibe. And it wasn't, so I've talked about this before too, where it's like, Part of me, I actually did take, I, I love photography, love photos, always have. And I actually did take a ton of photos. So I have a lot of photos of me using, but not compared, but they weren't on the internet. Like I have them, I have them, you know what I mean? Like it's, it was a well, whole they different ball. They weren't yeah, on these things. No, they, they weren't on the phone. cameras. This is everybody, I, yeah. everybody listening right now. There was actually a time where when you would take a picture, there was this thing called a camera. Yeah. And then you would take the picture on the camera. Yeah. And if you had a digital camera, you could then download it to your computer. But if not, Which you have to I go wait. If yeah. not, you have to go wait for yes. like three days for your pictures to come back. How how old are you in this picture? Twenty four. Okay, so that was the height of your. That that was. Yeah, the height I got of your arrested. Medication. I got arrested right before I turned twenty five. So yeah, that was the worst that it got. You moved from Israel in high school. <laughs> which is a, a fun time to move to a new country. Did you speak it was English? Very strange. Um, I did speak English, but not well. And also in Israel, you learn um, British English. So a weird Israeli accent with British English, brand new to a Chicago suburb high school was far from ideal. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> um, it was, look, here's the thing. I spoke a little. My sister spoke almost no English, so her situation was even worse. Um, like she had, you know, she went to ESL classes, which again is, I talk so much about shame. It's not that any of these things are objectively bad. It's that yeah. when you're thrown into that kind of a situation mm -hmm. and you already feel like you're not a good fit for just general consumption Life. by other people. And then there's like a very concise proof that you are different than everybody else. It's just, it's just made it tough. It's just made it tough. And it's not, it's not a sob story. It's nothing like, 
I was blessed in many, many ways, but it definitely made high school pretty tough. Yeah. When did you find uh, meth or drugs and alcohol? What was, what was your journey there? I found alcohol uh, when I was 14 years old. So that first year in the U.S. And we were at a sleepaway camp actually for an Israeli boy and Girl Scouts trip. And somebody handed me a bottle of vodka in like the second, I think it was the second night we were there or something. Boys and girls would all meet together in one cabin, even though we weren't allowed to. And, you know, I'm, I'm a nervous, shy kid. And somebody hands me a bottle of vodka and I'm not going to say no because I don't want to stick out. And then I have a little bit and it's freaking disgusting. But <laughs> I'm going to keep it down because I'm not going to be that weirdo who's like throwing it right. in the corner. And then 15 minutes later, I felt better than I've ever felt before in my life. I was, I could talk to girls and not care what they thought about me. I could hang out with the guys and not feel like I'm less than and like I have to compare myself all the time. Pretty much everything that had been normal for me since I was eight just kind of took a back seat. And that was, um, I mean, honestly, I look back at it, it was magical. I just, I didn't know it could be that. I didn't come from a family where we talked about feelings. So I never shared the, the inner craziness that was going on in my head with anybody else. And so as far as I was concerned, I just found a little medicine and it was really nice. It was really, really nice. And it worked really well for a while. You go on to use harder, you know, harder drugs. And as we talked about in the picture, you get to the height of your, your meth addiction. So it definitely progressed from there. How, so I want to, I want to understand the evolution of Adi from, from how, you know, from that, it, this is medicine, this is magic, you getting to this point, this bottom, and then coming into your discovery, your type of recovery that worked for you. I love it. I love it. The thing that I didn't know when I took that drink and felt way better than I ever had before and had a great night, really, and then continued coming back home to the suburb of Chicago, really drinking most weekends with friends who now I was part of the cool club, like I could drink. So I got invited to more parties, et cetera. What I didn't realize at the time was that I had a problem with anxiety. And because we never talked about emotions, nobody had ever a conversation with me about feelings at all. It never really got brought up. And looking back, there were millions of signs, but nobody knew how to read them. So I had essentially the equivalent of like an ulcer when I was in third grade. I would come home doubled over in pain in my stomach. Nobody could explain why my eating habits weren't weird. I would break out in hives periodically. Nobody, I get all the allergy tests in the world. Nobody could figure out why it's happening. It was anxiety and stress. But I'm like nine and 10. So who at nine and 10 has so much anxiety and stress to break out in this way? And so just it got glossed over. When drinking showed up, I, I found an answer nobody had told me was there before, which is there are things that can fix the way you feel about yourself. Uh, and so it started with alcohol. It then went to weed. And weed was the same, literally almost the exact same story. Sitting in a circle with a bunch of people, including a girl that I thought was really cute and I liked. She hands me a joint. I'm not going to say no to a girl I like. So I take the, I'm not going to look weird. So I take it and I smoke. Barely even felt anything. But from that point on, now I'm drinking and smoking every day. And by the time I went to college, I mean, I was a stoner and I drank heavily pretty much every day. And... um that just that was just the norm. And the stupid things that I did were, yes, consequences of the use and the drinking, but the amount of um, calm and serenity that these things gave me on a regular basis trumped any negative consequences I had by my long shot. I felt like I had friends. I felt like I belonged. I felt like I knew what I wanted 
in life, I felt like people weren't most of the time um, laughing about me or talking about me behind my back, which was not true when I was sober for long periods of time. I had a lot of self-doubt all the time. So you were asking how it got to be really bad and how it turned around. I went through a major depression after a breakup, which was for a guy like me, somebody breaking up with you after two years is proof that you're never going to find somebody. You're never going to be able to be in love and, and live that life you want. So I went all in on drugs, cocaine, MDMA, mushrooms, acid. I mean, ketamine. And you're THB. in college? I'm in college. At this, At this point, I'm... Oh, where are you in college? So I'm in SUNY Buffalo when this starts okay. happening. Okay. Um, and I did... I, I did two years there. Sounds like a jail sentence. <laughs> um, but I, I spent two years. I mean, it's so cold. It is like jail over there. But I spent two years there. And then, I mean, from the really from the second semester of my freshman year, it was a night. I was, I was so messed up constantly. Like I would wake up at noon or one o'clock, drink until th- and smoke weed until 3 a.m., pass out. It was a nightmare. By the skin of my teeth transferred out to UCLA, I wanted to get out of the cold and I was able to, I've, I mean, I still barely understand how I made it, but I made it. That happens a lot of my story. And I um, started at UCLA and UCLA was a reset for me because a big part of my use was environmental and the people that I used to use would disappear, but my discomfort was still there. So I gradually picked up new people. Then ecstasy became a major part of my life and um, I didn't have money. So drug dealing became a major part of my life because I wanted the ecstasy but I didn't have money to buy the ecstasy. So I went to a friend and borrowed a little money and then developed my own little entrepreneurial endeavor. And, you know, drugs is a supply-based business. If you have drugs, people will buy them from you. And I grew very quickly from being broke, barely being able to afford my motorcycle and, um, you know, kind of just roaming around to hundreds of clients, tens of thousands of dollars a month, a week eventually in income, and all the girls and all the attention and whatever that mm-hmm. I wanted. And with that came massive, just massive amounts of drug use. So it's not a joke and I'm, it's not a euphemism. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that probably from the age of 21 to the age of 25, I don't know that I spent a full 24 hours sober. And towards the latter end of that, surely all day, every day with meth. But then we take mushrooms or just take some ecstasy or do some acid or something else on top of the meth. And it was just, it was oh, just yeah. what it was. It was just well, you had your, you had, I experienced this too, where it, like I had my baseline with Coke or heroin or Coke and heroin. And then like, it was like, that's your like medication. Like that's your baseline. And then it's like, let's go party and put whatever on top of it. So it wasn't even like, I wouldn't have considered the baseline drugs using, cause I was always on those. The other stuff was like the, you know, the actual you in and my I, head and, People asked me and I knew I was addicted to meth, right? So like you're saying a baseline, I knew there was an underlying constant addiction to meth. I just didn't know that I could do anything about it. I was like, yeah, I'm just, this is what I got now. And it started, I'm saying innocently in air quotes, because I was behind on finals. Somebody handed me some meth to snort and they were like, look, if you do this stuff, you'll be able to get through finals. And they were right. I studied <laughs> for 72 hours straight. I'd never been in a situation like that. Um <sighs> And so I gradually started using more and more frequently. And mm-hmm. within a year, for sure, it might have been within three to six months because I also started selling it because it made a lot of money. Um, I was using it every day. And as you met, it's like people drink coffee. I didn't. <laughs> exactly. And initially, I started snorting it. But snorting was really, really Painful. intense. Yeah. High. Even when you're, um, you've developed tolerance to it, it's still hard to know when you're going to fall asleep. So then smoking, because I had so much of it, it wasn't about wasting money. 
I would smoke it because it allowed me to control it more. But I think now, you know, I'm 44 years old, going on 45 with three kids, a wife who I've known for 16 years. The level of insanity of the day-to-day life that I lived back then would be so intolerable to me right now. <laughs> like I tell people, and we'll talk, we'll talk in a second about this the very different recovery way that I I have that I live in my life. But I tried. I'll be honest. I was sober for a minute, and I tried to go back to drug dealing because I was broke, and I just couldn't take the insane stress. Waking up in the morning, that guy owes you $4,000. You got a dealer's coming back by today, needs his money. Like from the moment I would wake up, I was insane. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is, you can't do this without being high. Not the way I did it. Maybe there's an organized, you know, cartel like way of doing it. But the way I did it, it's beginning of the morning to the end of the night. It's, um, it's just a circus. And so my circus ended after a motorcycle accident where they found about a half a pound of cocaine on me. And then they tried to get me to snitch for three months and I wouldn't. And then one Saturday morning, the beautiful Beverly Hills uh, SWAT team came to my mm. apartment in Brentwood. They made the trek over the 405. And oh, wow. uh, nice of them. It was, it was nice of them. They gave me a ride back and everything. Um, yeah. Eight o'clock in the morning, I wake up to just guns and 12 <laughs> officers, like, you know, just like shotguns mm-hmm. to my head, screaming at the top of their lungs. And my bedroom was not big. So 12 cops fitting in there was kind of an insane experience. And I had a gun next to my bed. And thank God to this day, I didn't even try to reach for it or anything because they would have just shot me on the spot. And and then they kept going after, you know, they just went in my walls and in the ducts and they just found all the drugs that they could and everything, all the money, everything that they could and took me initially to the Beverly Hills jail. But by the end of that day, I was down in LA County, uh, spent Mm -hmm. a few days in there. I had almost a tower. In the, well, actually, at first I was at the USC like hospital center because my leg oh, okay. was broken from the motorcycle accident. Um, that is not a fun ward of the jail. Not like any of them are great, but um, that's the place where the people who jumped off buildings to get away from cops or the people who cops oh, broke their shit. leg. It was it was not a fun place to be in. And my leg's broken. And I'm, I, I kicked meth in that bed for about a week and was actually grateful for that because my parents were not stupid. They're the nicest people on the face of the earth. And they were so at my side, which is incredible, but they were trying to figure out how to bond me out of like a $750,000 bail. And I go, don't even think about it. Yeah. I'll sit here for as long as I need to. You're not spending a hundred, $200,000 to get me out of this thing. It's insane. And a week later I go in front of the judge. He lowered my bail. I got out on like a $50,000 bail and went to rehab for the first time. My lawyer was like, you got to go to rehab. And this is an important part of the story. Nobody asked you any questions. Nobody said, well, here's some options. What do you want? They said, this is the place you're going to. You got to go tomorrow. And they're waiting for you. Pack a bag. My girlfriend at the time, which is funny to say, but not really my girlfriend. Like, But the girl that I was dating at the time took me in her like Mustang and dropped me off at the, um, at the rehab. And it was like you've seen in all the movies. You know, They check my bag and then they show me a room and then they bring me to a group. There was a, a group running at the time. And in that group... On my first day, within 20 minutes of going to rehab, is when I got introduced to the, the language of recovery. And that was, they asked me, why are you here? And I tried to tell them a factual story. I said, well, I got arrested and I went to jail and I got out. But my lawyer said, I got to go to rehab. He said, no, that's not why you're here. Oh, um, you know, I've been using meth for a lot of years and it's taken me down the wrong path. I would give them all the answers like normal people in the world would give. And after what felt like 45 minutes, but as I've told this story hundreds of times, it was probably 10 minutes or five minutes. The main guy, the uh, Charles was his name, the the counselor, 
said, no, you're here because you're an addict and you've always been an addict uh, and you're finally in the place where you need to be because this is where addicts need to go to get help. And look, remember, I'm awkward guy who doesn't like being put on the spot. All I wanted was the keys to the kingdom. Just tell me what words I need to say for you to get me out of the spotlight. So now I have my language. Like, oh, I'm here because I'm an addict. Cool. I know what to say now. And then every day we would go to one or two AA meetings and maybe there'd be another group that's kind of 12-step based in the house. We would do a little gym, like we'd run around in a circle in the morning and then uh, we'd do gardening. And that was rehab. You know, that was my experience of rehab. Now, again, that's 18 years ago, but it was like $10,000, $12,000 a month, 18 years ago. And for a month I stayed sober. And then after a month, they let me go to work. But, you know, my work was a recording studio. So... I got like special privileges because I was a private paying client. So they, they let me go to my recording studio. But I mean, if I'm honest, this, these are the things I actually did in my recording studio. I, every day I would play about an hour or two of music. I would watch a lot of porn and I would smoke a lot of meth. Like that's what my days looked like. <laughs> and um, I was sober they for They didn't a month. drug test you? They didn't drug test me for another two months. And the drug test, you're going to love this. The drug test they gave me. So I, I used for two months while in yeah. rehab. Which, by the way, is the worst feeling walking back into rehab high on meth. That is not oh, a fun experience. Sounds absolutely terrible. And then they gave us a pass for New Year's Eve. Now, They're I just want everybody to kind of think to themselves, like, you're a couple of months into recovery. New Year's Eve passed. My family's on the East Coast. I got nobody here. I spent New Year's Eve at an ecstasy party that I sold the ecstasy to because I was still, like, trying to sell. So I was flat broke. I had no money. So I was trying to sell some drugs still. Mm-hmm. Smoking meth in the corner watching a bunch of people fooling around half naked, like having sex on the floor, thinking to myself, this is kind of boring. And I think I'm in deep trouble. Like both of them at the same time, it kind of went back immediately to where I'd been before, which is a story you always hear. Right. But I was over it. I didn't want to participate. I just wanted to smoke my meth in the corner and just have everybody leave me alone. But man, five o'clock in the morning when I knew I had to go back to rehab, like the reality that I'm about to walk into rehab after being up all night on meth. There's no way you look normal after that. I would drink the pee stuff and like I drank mm-hmm. a gallon of water. I did, all the stuff. <laughs> I did all this stuff. Yeah. It didn't work. This is in t- 2002. So the drug test came back like a week later. It was, well, they probably got a screening and then they sent it into the lab. So a week later they come in and they're like, Hey, you tested positive. You got to get out of here. And they kicked me out and I had to get in my car and I remember thinking to myself at the time, I was just, a, again, I was lying. I was trying to tell them I hadn't done anything. But um, it always seemed weird to me that essentially what happened was I got sent to rehab. When it was working well, everybody was fine. Nobody cared. But the moment they found out that I was actually in trouble, the first response was, well, get out of here now. I was like, wait, isn't this exactly why I came here is exactly for the addiction? Got kicked out, had a call with my dad. My dad and I talked every day back then because we had repaired our relationship. And um. Start out lying to him, but then pretty quickly told him the truth and said, look, I didn't, I didn't move out of rehab. I got kicked out. They caught me using and he flipped out on me and kind of put up his hands up in the air and said, um, what the hell's wrong with you? It's, you're screwing everything up. You just gave away three months of the sobriety thing that was going to save you out of 15, 20 years in prison. What the hell do you expect me to do? And it was the first moment that it really dawned on me that nobody can help me. I need to figure this out on my own. And that was the beginning of my path of coming to terms with my recovery I found another sober living within two weeks, but I was high the entire two weeks. And then the exact same system, a daily meeting, the blah, blah, blah meeting in the in the house, everything it was exactly the same, but I was now committed. I was like, oh shit, I got to get this right or I'm screwed for the rest of my life. And so this time it worked. Got in front of the judge about 
almost a year later, eight months later, I was now eight months sober. I looked completely different. I had these letters of recommendation from all these people. My family was on the, you know, in the, um, on the benches in the courtroom. And so instead of giving me 15 to three years was the minimum anybody was even asking for. He gave me one year with a suspended sentence, which meant he literally said to me, he's like, look, if you screw this up again, you've got seven years waiting for you plus whatever you do next time. And honestly, that kept me on the straight and narrow. I went to jail. I did a whole year. Jail is a nightmare. Yeah, you didn't go to prison because you were under under a year. 364 days. Oh, my God. So you did your whole time in jail. Yeah. Now, I think he was smart in the sense that once you get into parole and parole officers, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really hard to get out of that loop. And I think he was trying to give me a chance. But jail itself sucks. Dirty... You don't have your own place ever. I probably lived in eight or 10 different cells over that year that I was... Well, I did four months in LA County and then I went to a work work furlough release program. But, you know, jail is the only place where you can be scared and bored all at the same time. And so I had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to think. And um, when I when those doors closed behind me on the way out, I knew one thing for sure. And that was I wanted to do everything I could to never end up back in that place. And for somebody like me, who up until this point never really thought they were going to really get in trouble and never really thought shit was going to hit the fan, I needed I needed proof for myself, like something that I believed in, not everybody else believed in, something that I believed in that was a red line that I didn't want to cross again. And that's, you know, when I got out, I had almost three years sober. Sorry, I had two years sober. I stayed sober for another year, kind of going to meetings on and off, trying to get a job. You can't get a job as a nine-time convicted felon. And uh, and I tried. I tried the mall. I tried the Apple store, which was just opening at the time. I would get these initial interviews. Then they would go, oh, this looks great. We're just going to do the background check. Never got a call back for nine months. And I am a privileged, lucky, white upper middle class kid to be able to even say the next sentence, which is my parents were paying my rent that entire time. Cause if they hadn't, I would go back to dealing. I had nothing else I knew how to do. And, and so, you know, I, I didn't tell the story this way for the first few years when I got out. Cause it seemed like, Oh, I did so much. I did, I did so much work to get out on the other side, but if I didn't have that safety net, it didn't matter I what I wanted to do. You know, yeah, I relate to that. Yeah. And so, my parents were amazing. I can't believe that they were there for me. And after about six to seven months, I said to my parents, I said, look, I can't look for work anymore. This is kind of insane. You can't just keep paying my rent. I'm sitting around not doing anything. And so I applied to go back to school, which I never thought I'd want to do again. And it was in school that I first saw a massive gap between the way recovery was presented to me in the world and the way psychology and addiction was portrayed in the literature and research. And um, so it was in that third year, I had about three years sober and I came to my family. I said, look guys, I don't know if I'm this person that they're talking about in the rooms all the time. I don't think that's me. And for anybody not familiar, that's a question very often asked. Like, I don't know what the percentage is, but my guess is the vast majority of people ask themselves that question at some point. Like, am I really that person in the book that everybody talks about? So I talked to my family and we talked for six months I'm learning abnormal psychology and social psychology and neuroscience and all these things. I'm like, I think I want to take the experiment. And the AA experiment is, can I drink again, right? Can I do it? I was dating a girl who was, I hate these fucking terms. She was, she was a normie. And (laughs) 
So she drank and I just hadn't while we were dating. And I talked about it for so long. One day she was a waitress. She lived in Hermosa Beach and we were sitting on her balcony overlooking this beautiful ocean. And she was drinking a glass of champagne. She was off work that day. And I just reached over. I got one sip of champagne, just one sip. And I sat back because I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I thought my what I'd been told was my brain was going to start shifting back to the old place and I would start smoking meth again and all that stuff. And uh, so I don't think I had another sip of alcohol for weeks, maybe even a month or so. But I gradually started kind of reintroducing, which was actually, to be honest, very weird. Everybody knew me now as a non-drinker, a non-user. And for me, what it came down to regularly, and it had before, but I didn't know it, was an ongoing quest. Probably, if I'm honest about it, a never-ending quest to self-improve, to self-analyze, to self-process, and to never take my truth or reality as the truth or reality, but rather understand that I'm here to change, to constantly evolve. And that's been true in my recovery. That story of taking the first sip of uh, champagne happened in 2003. So that was about 18, well, August, so about 17 and a half years ago. I'm glad to report if anybody's concerned that I'm all good. Um, I still drink socially and it's not it's not an issue. But I mean, the short of it is I learned it's not even about the alcohol at all. It's about all those things that were problematic for me early on and that I have to be the same way that most people in traditional recovery circles feel like they have to be diligent about not using and not drinking and going to meetings. I have to be diligent about self-exploration, self-improvement and um, and, and service. I'm really big on service and purpose. It's they're huge parts of my life. And let me ask you a question. So you, you know, you, what is your PhD in? Psychology. Psychology. So, okay. So you, you have a PhD. You're, you're a smart guy, PhD in psychology. You lecture. I, I got a PhD, but I don't know. Well, just go with me on it. Lectured at UCLA, go Bruins. And, you know, you spent a lot of time in the research and the data of this, right? And, and, so there's that piece of of your persona and then there's the piece of your persona that is, you know, can be, you know, smoke meth and sell drugs and be enterprising in a, you know, in the underbelly of society. So from my perspective and one of the reasons you you are an expert, you are called upon to talk about this method of recovery that you have been doing and you have a program based around it. You have a book based around it. That's it's, it's very much what you're passionate about. I have very similar experiences to you. I've been to a lot of rehabs and am sober 15 and a half years. And for me, every time I took that drink, every time, and I did it <laughs> a lot of times trying to do what you did. Cause I was like, well, I'm a drug addict, not an alcoholic. Every time I did it, six months later, I had a needle in my arm. Three months later, I was... And and I remember doing that experiment, taking that drink, and literally, I can't piece to... I don't know how, what happened next, but the next morning, I woke up with Coke in my in my pocket and was like flushing it down the toilet. Like, it's, this isn't real. This isn't real. I didn't do this. You know, I'm trying to make this experiment work. And I was desperate for that. And it just, I, every time I did it, 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 for me, when you would take the drink, did you tell other people or would you kind of run the experiment yourself? I did both. I tried both. So, you know, my whole thing is fuck shame, right? That's one of my big things. Right. And yeah. Here's, here's the reality. And, and by the, and I love this and let's, I want to just be clear. 
My goal is not for people's recovery to look like mine. Okay. I want to be very, very clear about that. My goal is not for moderation to become the de facto. Right, right, right. My goal is to finally put an end to the ever increasing rate of overdoses and deaths and lives destroyed. That's it. 100%. So I'm with you. The only reason I'm even opening the door is because we know, I know from my research that I did, like 50 to 60% of people don't even engage in treatment because abstinence is a requirement. And to me, it's like, you can either bang it against their head for another hundred years and see if they'll change their mind, but most of them will be already dead because a hundred years will have passed. Or you can say, hey, you know what? If that's the thing that bothers you so much, let's try it without abstinence and see how it works. And a lot of times people who come to me for moderation end up abstaining because they don't like the moderation version. So just to be clear, it's just a way to open the door. But but I want to I want to talk about something about the fuck shame because I think this is so important. There's a stigma, uh, a way of talking about addicts, and I hate the term, but I'm putting it in air quotes because that's what we all call them, alcoholics and addicts, where they're unmotivated, they're selfish, they don't care about anybody else, they'll lie, steal, cheat, do anything they can to get what they want because they're so self-absorbed. In their addiction. In their addiction. In their yeah. addiction. In their addiction. Yeah. In but I mean, it, you don't, let me ask, you don't think that's true? No, I think they're running. I think they're escaping and they're running and they're weak. Totally, totally agree. But but let's just, want, let me dive there. I yeah. agree with you. But the way that it is reflected I know, to the this people, is, but this, the people, is the issue, they, this, this is, it is to say they're, they're self-centered because they're running and they're running, they're self-centered because they're running away from their feelings. They're selfish because they're running away from their feelings. They're, they're stealing because they're running away from their feelings and feeding the addiction. How is that stuff not true? It's not that it's not true. That's not who they are. That's a behavior. Oh, agree. Agree. But we define them by those behaviors. And what I'm saying is what we don't understand. I think this is a big thing for us. We don't know why people don't want to walk in the rooms. Taking on the label of an addict and alcoholic is saying I'm a loser for the rest of my life. It doesn't matter. I know, Ashley, that you 15 years later see it differently, but you got success. So you got the 15 years of experience. What I think we have to understand is it's been shown for decades. Now it's 88%, but it used to be 90% of people. So I'll, I'll use 90 to round up a little bit. 90% of those who need help don't get it. So are we going to talk to the 20% of people who sought it, got help, and got better? Or am I trying to talk to the 90% of the people who won't even touch help? My, my goal in life is to talk to those 90%. What can get those 90% in the door? And what has been proven to us time and time again is that calling them names, labeling them and telling them what they have to do doesn't work. It's just been shown. So, cause we've tried it. Go ahead. It doesn't work. So a couple things. Number one, we started Lion Rock because of the mission you're talking about, right? Help the, those percentage of people. And, and so I'm with you. We also started a program called community that allows people to define their own recovery and come in and do meetings. And it has, over 3,000 people attending a week as a support group. You can do whatever kind of recovery you want for that reason. And, and in, in our, you know, in our motto, it's like, this is about seeking peace of mind and body, whatever that looks like for you. So agree with you. You have on, a Sinclair method program that allows people to use the yes. Sinclair method, which is a non-abstinence approach that is medication yes. provided. Yes. My, our goal and my goal is to help people not die and live happy lives, right? It's not just not die. And you, you've you said in your literature, you know, if, if all you get is absence, I haven't, I've failed you. And I could not fucking agree more. If all you get is abstinence for, you know, that's it. However, 
what I, the part I struggle with, right, is, is your, what I hear you saying is that it, it doesn't work, right? That's what, that's what you're saying, but it does work for a group of people. But that's the thing is I'm not, so here, I'll just say it again, because I think this is a, a really important point. I think that what I do serves yeah. both the people for whom AA works or traditional recovery works and the people who don't. You know why? The people for whom traditional recovery works hate me. It actually galvanizes Oh, I know them. that. Oh, it I proves, believe it. It proves to them more that what they do works, which is great. Because I don't, it's not that I don't care. I care about them as human beings, but like they found something that works for them. I... I'm here for the 90% that are being left out. And what I'm saying is, if I can bring 15% of those people into the fold, I will have served my purpose. And and here's something that is really important for everybody to hear. I just literally, I invited this guy for a conversation. It's the second time I'm talking about him today, and I'm not going to use his name. But I got a DM on Instagram, and this guy came to the rehab that I used to run. I never saw him, but he saw my partner at the time. And so he left me a message saying, hey, I just want to let you know that your message is sometimes really dangerous. I went to your partner. He gave me essentially permission after seven years of sobriety to relapse and the wheels came off. And I was like, oh, well, first of all, I don't know what permission to relapse looks like, but essentially what it sounded like, and I'm going to have a conversation with this guy this Thursday, just because I want to dive in more deeply, was this guy was trying to figure out if he should do the experiment or not. And then he came in and apparently my partner, he didn't wasn't part of the rehab, he was just part of his private practice told him something that made it seem to him like maybe using maybe you could use again or something like that, right? Here's where the rubber meets the road to me. I think sometimes we lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves that when somebody has that kind of a question, they're looking for somebody to stop them. They're not. They're looking for somebody to justify it. And they want to find that there's a reason to do it. And here's my, here's my fear. My fear is that by presenting one option, which you guys don't, by the way, so that's what I, I love about this conversation. You guys don't present one option. But by presenting one option, what we're saying is it's this or nothing. And we know the data shows us, the statistics prove it. Most people choose nothing. So if we just had another option here and another one right next to it and another one right next to it, et cetera, and we said, which one of these do you like? Even yes, you may hate hearing this, not to you personally, but anybody listening. Even do you want to go put a needle in your arm in a safe injection site? That environment reduces the rate of overdoses at least. And keeps them alive one more day. Maybe they talk to a nurse. Maybe they see somebody else who's gotten sober and they get inspired by that. We're all just trying to solve any little problem. And it's not because you mentioned Ignited Recovery. And I love what we do with people. But I'm not in any way, shape or form lying to myself and believing that like we have the holy grail. And we've, you know, we found the next best option in the universe to help people with addiction. What we have found is an option that works for a lot of people who felt rejected by traditional approaches, and they're out there not willing to engage with anything else, looking for somebody who speaks to them. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. I want to interrupt this episode to have a short little discussion about support groups. And there is no better person to talk to about this than my production coordinator, Ashley Joe Brewer, AJB, if you will. AJB, hi. Hi. Okay, you're a big fan of community. You attend community support group meetings. Give why? Why why should people care? I absolutely love community because it creates a community. And I know that sounds funny, but 
It truly provides a space for anyone and everyone, no matter what they are going through. Just to give you an example, I invited or told a friend about community because she was really struggling with binge eating disorder and had gone to many different groups and felt shunned or not accepted or like it wasn't a place for her. And at community, she found a place because in community meetings, it's we don't care what the substance is or what the struggle is everyone is accepted no matter where they are in life no matter what they are recovering from and i think that's what's beautiful about community oh i love it and i i yes i 100% agree with you that the value is that you don't have to know what your problem is, what your struggle is, what you want to give up or not give up, or whether you're abstinent or whether you're stopping one, whatever, whatever it is, you are welcome and you are welcome in this place. And it's a great place to discover the answers to all the questions that you're looking for in a community and have that support. And it's free to anyone. You go to lionrock.life and there is a tab with community meetings There are different days, different times, different subjects. There's even a cooking group called Community Table. There are so many different options, something out there for everyone. So I highly recommend, maybe after you listen to this, if you are looking for more community in your life, more friends, more support, please, please go check out community, lionrock.life. Click that community tab. So why, again, we're on the same page. I, I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue a bit of semantics here with you, which is that you know, I while semantics, my my father and husband hate how I do this. So um, I, I have them in my head going, "Stop arguing semantics." I think that in campaigns, words are so important. There's so many, you know, defund the police, right? Like that, I think that's a, a terrible campaign, right? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't signify what that really means. And, and so I think that getting our words right in our campaigns, really, really important. And one of the things that I have a reaction to with your stuff, even though we're on the same, like literally a hundred percent on the same page. One of the things I have a reaction to with your stuff. And I always giggle to myself because I'm like, this guy just knows he's ruffling the shit out of everybody's feathers. I, 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 I yeah. And I like, he, he, he knows I, I dig it. And, but the thing I have a reaction to is like your book, abstinence myth. What that says is abstinence doesn't work as opposed to it's one of the options. Yeah. So look, first of all, abstinence should be one of the options, but not the only one in treatment. If we want to save more people, would never sell one book. And so, like, <laughs> Okay. All right. No, that's a great, you, you that's have a to fair have, you answer. You have to have a hook. It's just the way it works. Okay. But, okay. but let me explain. And I'm, <laughs> look, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give you another analogy that I've given talks to professionals in a second, but um, the, the, here, here are the two abstinence myths that I actually argue for in the book. Number one, I believe that abstinence should not be the gatekeeper for recovery. What I mean by that is we shouldn't ask people to commit to lifelong abstinence before we've started helping them. And people argue with me on this all the time, but the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to to quit drinking. So the only way you can argue with me is if you remove that demand from the book. Otherwise, 
now you're talking semantics. Well, we say it, but we don't mean it. Well, screw you then. Then fucking drop it out the book if you don't mean it. Because what it says to every person who comes in, and it says, you say it meeting after meeting, the only desire is to quit. And what you're saying to everybody who's not ready to quit is you can't come in here. Now, I'm sorry, but when you say that to somebody, everything else you say is bullshit after it. It doesn't matter. You already told me that if I tell you the truth, which is I'm not sure that I'm ready to quit. I'm not sure that I want it. My life sucks and I want help. Everything else you tell me after you said the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking is a lie because you already told me what I need to be in this room. So that's number one. Abstinence should not be at the gate. If I talk about this from the standpoint of any other mental health or biological, like physical ailment, it sounds insane. Imagine going to a therapist and having the therapist go, look, if we're going to work on depression, I want to make sure that it's clear. I can't see you if you're depressed. It sounds fucking crazy. We we literally at Lion Rock in the very beginning, one of the things that and and I've been thrown out of every treatment center I've went I've been to, which is kind of a lot, um, except for one, and that was the the only thirty day one. I made it thirty days without getting thrown out. And so one of the things that we instituted early on was that we don't throw people out for relapsing. We help them because, and, and we also help them on the, on the front end because the expectation that they're going to, they don't know how to stop drinking. We're trying to help them. And then we're upset that they don't know how to stop drinking. Like we don't have that, you know, we were like, we can't let you into group drunk, but we're going to put together a plan to help you. Here are the things number, we're going to do. Love it. So and, number and one so, with is you, you can't demand the thing you're trying to fix from somebody before you fix it. However, one of the, the requirements for our moderation program is being absent the first 30 days while you're putting together your program yeah, for, we did that for 60 days. For, for moderation, right? So, so the, so abstinence has, and I totally fair, the book thing. I, I, you're right. It's legitimate. I think, (laughs) you know, yeah, it's not, it's not ideal. It's legitimate. I think, um, this, you know, it's scary because I, I had a friend who smart recovery where they don't count days and I gotta be honest, you know, the things that you're discussing, they, that, that don't work for a lot of people, they were the only thing that worked for me. And I tried everything. And I am one of those people where my brain is always looking to like get me out of the abs. My brain is just constantly, I'm not a, a you know, selfish person, but when I'm using, I am in that, in that state. And I, I can separate myself from that name. You know, I think a lot of these things that we're talking about interestingly, are not things I've experienced in, in my, I didn't feel like I was named. I didn't, I didn't feel, you know, the recovery communities I belong to weren't, weren't that, uh, what's the word rigid, but I know that that exists. And I, I think that it's really, really important to allow people the space to discover what works for them. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says in it that if you think you are a normal drinker, if you can contract, I'm I'm like totally butchering the sentence, but that go ahead and try some controlled drinking. It says that in the book. It also says that uh, AA has no monopoly on recovery, but most AA members, not sorry, I shouldn't say most, a lot of AA members just completely ignore those two lines. That's true. That's true. Can can I just, can I just ask a question though, actually, because I think this is really important. How many, how many rehabs, like off the top of your head? I think eight, like including outpatients. Okay. 
eight of them, they were all absent in space, right? They all took you at AA meetings? Yes. They took us uh, at, at, Met- at the Meadows. They took us to more than AA, but yes, oh, I went to one that I went to one treatment center for a year. That was one, uh, like a, I forgot what it's called, but like community there, like a community based. And we went, it was all 12 step based heavy yeah, duty, like a, com- like a community, like a therapeutic community, therapeutic community. That's what it was. And it was heavy, heavy, like every day I knew the book back and forth. Yeah. I went, my, my years in AA were at the Pacific group, which is a very rigid group locally. Yeah. Um, Wasn't quite that rigid. (laughs) So here's the thing. I don't know if you hear it in it, but here's the way I see it. And it's all about perspective and I get it. And I, I deeply respect you guys' work. I mean, I did when we first met, I don't know, whenever that was 12 years ago, ago. eight tries of the same thing. And it only worked on the eighth try. Not even. Or after. Doesn't that tell you that it's more about your readiness and your ability to listen than about the method? A thousand percent. But Adi, I wouldn't have lived. I literally would not have survived. But that's all I'm saying. And, and please hear me when I say yeah. this. Because I, don't, I don't mean, I mean, no disrespect, but that's your assumption. And what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is this. I've had, even the guy who was kind of trying to bitch me out and we'll have a conversation on Thursday and I can report back on what that was like. Part of what I wanted to say to him is maybe you needed somebody like that guy, Mark, to pretend that drinking would be fine. So you could finally say to yourself, there's a professional who says this is okay. And then you went and did it, not in spite of others, not as a rebellion, but because you thought that it was okay and it wasn't okay. And when that ended, you were like, oh, fuck, I can't drink and hear me out. And I'm, this is not, is this the safest route that I'm talking about? No. Is it the, okay. like, is it the ideal way? No, but like, Twice as many people are dying every 10 years. Whatever we're doing right now is not stopping the bleeding. So all I'm trying to do is say, how do I talk to those motherfuckers that are on the outskirts and they just won't respond to anything else? Maybe if I tell them, don't worry about abstinence, just come in and talk about your pain. Maybe if I tell them that, more of them will come in. And once they come in, maybe I can take some of those people and save them. And then maybe some of those people will now get to live lives abstinent, moderate. I don't give a fuck lives, just live lives, right? A lot. Yes, of course, a lot of our success stories end up being abstinent. But if I would have told them that they have to abstain in the beginning, they wouldn't have walked in. And so there you go. Yeah. You know, like, is it a risk? Yes. But like, I've, I told my wife this, I, it seems audacious and like, who the fuck am I to say this out loud? But when I get an email from a person who just got felt rejected over and over and over, a person like you were on that A3 rehab over and over and over, I've tried it, I've done, and they say, this is the first time something has made sense. And I'm now eight months in or six months in, I got my kids back. I'm living at home. That's it. That's why I do this. Yeah. I make less money than I would if I worked a regular goddamn job. Um, it's stressful as hell. You also get all the bitching on, on, on the other side of the, the successes. But like, you know, the couple of the, the many dozens to a couple of hundreds of lives that like have been changed forever by what we're doing in three, four years, they're worth the lack of safety to me and the pain. Because the way my story, and it's I totally get it, it's my perspective and my story, is those few hundred people would be dead on the side of the road somewhere, overdose, because they couldn't fathom going to another meeting And the only thing anybody ever talked to them was about a meeting. So my ideal scenario is this. When somebody goes into recovery, there's a world where 
they automatically get presented all the options. And maybe if we're good at it, and that's something we're trying to do at Ignited, we can get good at predicting, hey, you seem to be like this kind of person. These kinds of people really like this treatment program and match them with a couple that they would really love. And they can be cheap and easy to access and not crazy expensive, et cetera. And then let, let that person try it. And if it works for them, everybody applauds and bows down and is great. But if it doesn't, stop telling them, hey, you need to want this more. It's not working because you're not trying hard enough. But say, hey, maybe this isn't the right. You want to try this other one? And just play a little game of whack-a-mole with them. Just play it with them for a minute until maybe they find whatever works for you after that A3 rehab. Because we know, I know internally, the least safe thing is a person who's really struggling and has no help. More dangerous to me is a person who's struggling and has no help than a person who's struggling and is told, hey, don't quit for now. Come into the sessions and let's just see what we can do. That's what it feels like to me. And it doesn't have to feel that way to everybody. And you know, I've lost like four or five clients in my 12 years of work. But I know people in very traditional recovery who've lost clients. So it's not like, it's not like I lose them for that reason. Like when people have... I'm learning the language. When people have died by suicide or by overdose now, I mean, the impact is devastating because you're always second guessing. Did I, did I fuck them up? Did I, did I screw right. it up? Every clinician does, whether it's whatever method, every clinician working with someone who dies, I mean, every, every person around that person questions, could they have done something? Yeah. So I'm not, I, I want to just be clear, right? The abstinence myth says two things. Stop putting abstinence at the front and requiring it before you give somebody help. It doesn't make sense anywhere else in the world, and I don't think it makes sense in addiction. Secondly, let's stop measuring recovery only by consecutive days abstinence. How do we measure? I, I agree with that, but how do we measure? This is something I've actually we've actually spent a lot of time thinking about because we were you know, at Line Rock, we were putting together like a program um, that would coincide with ways to measure different success, different ways to measure success and putting together some sort of, you know, uh, thing about happiness and, and calm, you know, how do you measure these things? How, what's your metric or do you have a metric? I have a few and I'll, I'll start with the simple ones. Okay. God, I hate, sorry. The thought in my head right away is all I'm asking is if you start using them at, at Lion Rock, give a little credit to this conversation. <laughs> Percent of days abstinent. And, okay, the amount I like of reduction, that. and the amount of reduction in drinking over a specific period of time, I think Love all that. three of those together, how many days consecutively, what percent of days have you used and how much do you use on those days? Here's why. This is I, an, I love it. This is an insane concept to me, but it runs to this day in most meetings. If you've got 15 years and you had a, a bender on a weekend, you go back to the front of the line. I'm sorry. Are we really saying that that person has acquired no learning? Hold on. No, hold on. They're hold not on. saying hold that. On. Let me let me hold okay. on. Let me, okay. let me get to the All end right. of that. Okay. Something's gone wrong, obviously. If somebody's been on one path for 15 years and then deviated so badly, something's gone wrong. Do they need like an extra punch in the gut? Not necessarily. So what happens? Now they lost, they have zero days abstinent in a row. But if you look at the last year or the last month of their recovery, they're still like 95%, 96% abstinent. And the thing is, somebody is much more likely, in my opinion, to say, you know what? I've still got an A. It's not perfect, but I still got an A. I can jump back on the horse and get it done and, and come back. So the percent days, sure, if you go out for a month, two months, three months, that percent starts suffering too. And then you've got the next level, which is 
how much are you drinking? If somebody's, I was just talking to a woman earlier today, 15 to 20 drinks a day since she was 18. That is uh, extremely heavy drinking, right? Yes, extremely. extremely heavy drinking. She probably wasn't using glasses anymore. Right. <laughs> um, no, no, no. She literally, like, she's a very smart woman. She would so pour them? It's IPAs. No, it's IPAs. And she just knows, she drinks about six or seven of them, but they're double strength. So she just knows. But what I said to her is, look, so she's done about 20, 30% decrease in the last couple of months. And I said, look, if you found yourself two months down the line, drinking half as much as you do right now, would that be considered to you a success? Because one of the things that is really hard for us, we're perfectionists, whether people realize it or not. We want to hit the ball out the park. And when we don't, we feel so badly about it, we go back to our using. And so I've seen people who struggle with consecutive abstinence. They'll get three, four days at most, a week, 20 days, but they get more and more spacing between those days. So so they can they, they might only have seven days, but now all of a sudden it went to 40% from 20% abstinence over the last month. Let's find ways to measure progress for people in a nuanced way. And then if they used to drink 10 drinks and now on the weekend when they drink, they drink three, can we find a little compassion and empathy to say, hey, you know what, man, that's better. That's better than you were doing before. So yes, let's get back to where we were originally. But does that make sense a little bit? And and I agree with you. Again, I come to like, yes. And I've had conversations with people who have gone out after 10 years and I'm saying to them, look, your 10 years isn't gone. It's not gone. You were sober for 10 years. It doesn't just magically go away. It, it, it This is different. But I will say this, and this is the God's honest truth. If I didn't have to start over, my ego has kept me from taking a drink so many times because I knew I would end up back in the rooms and I knew I would take, I would, that I'd basically in my head, I'd lose my time. And my ego, if for it, it, it is the last, you know, the last gatekeeper on not drinking. And my ego has been like, absolutely not. If there's one reason. And I honestly think that if I could slip one day and get right back on the wagon, and again, I'm, classic. Like I, you know, I fit right into every, all of that. And I also like you, I hear, I hear you, you come from like Pacific group, which is a, a sect of 12 step that That's was very, it, it was very um, intense and, and rigid. I, I like, I come from a very loosey, like, <laughs> you know, kind yeah. of do your thing, kind of relaxed, so it's told I I don't relate to any of that, but I fit right into that, and that that day counting has kept me from from doing it. So, so I I hear you, and I agree because there's also another piece to that which uh, you're f- probably familiar with uh, Gorski, sure. um, and yeah. he talks. I know he's, he just, he talks a lot about in his um, relapse prevention training about get, getting people right back on the wagon, right? Cause we lose people in that space, in that relapse and shame. Uh, and if, and if I'm being honest with you, this, if I were to pick up, right, if I were to drink, whatever that looked like, because I've had 15 years, there's no fucking way. You're now I'm saying this. Meeting. I know. Well, no, no, it, it isn't that. There's no fucking way I'm going to walk in after one drink. I'm going to make it count, right? It's called the abstinence violation syndrome. 
Right. And so that that part of it is super dangerous. And I am certified in relapse prevention and have done all the Gorski stuff. I know in my head, I work with other people telling them how to get back on the wagon. But if I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, I don't know that I would be able to do it. I get it. So, so much. And I love, look, I don't know that I'd be able to have this conversation with a lot of other people because for other people, part of the question would be sort of how to prove me wrong. And then we end up in kind of a fight. And and what I love is you're sharing your experience and I'm I'm sharing my perspective. And so here's what I hear. I hear that there are aspects to life like all of us have that still drive you crazy because life is life and it doesn't it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside to anybody else. It yep. feels it feels like a circus still on the inside. And that sometimes the thought in your head is like, I just need a fucking break. Just a break. Like yes. somebody turn the lights off and just let me just rest. I'll be back tomorrow morning, I promise. But I just want like I just want to breathe and not have somebody call me, ask for me, pull on me, blah, whatever. Right? A hundred percent. And you mentioned the ego piece. And here's where I think the conflict ends up happening. And okay. you are like almost all of us. But what ends up happening is there's a piece to you, a piece related to pride because of your success. Because, I mean, look at what you've done. Like somebody looks at you now and maybe because you're in recovery, they know they you might have a recovery story. But like, look at what you've done, right? And so you look at yourself. I'm such, I'm on such a, such a pedestal. I'm on such a high rung. I can't, I can't show weakness. I can't, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to fix this shit. I gotta get to tomorrow. Everything's fine. You got the tools, you know what to do. And this relates back to something Sophie and I, my wife and I talk about all the time. And I preach to all of my, all of my clients, all my users is um, something called radical transparency and something that I believe we all need to have with at least, at least one, but hopefully a handful of people. I've now, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure if to the, for the people in my life, I've tried to grow the circle as big as I can. And that is for all of us to drop ego and be just the best we can be at any given moment in time, but also radically honest and transparent about what's actually going on behind the scenes so that we never, never, ever trap ourselves into being in a place where everybody thinks we're here, but we're actually down here and we have to play a part. Because, I mean, if you want to talk about what brought me to addiction in the first place, it was that, right? I'm the nervous kid who can't talk to girls, can't always compare myself to other people, looks, grades, I don't the bike I had, it didn't matter what it was. I was in my head. I, I walked around the world looking at other people, thinking like, I wonder what they think about me. I wonder it was insane what was going on in my head. And, and I was always trying to pretend that it wasn't happening, that I was just cool, feeling like the opposite of it, right? And what I learned, and we talked about this, this is what I honestly at the, at the core of it, and I call I now have an acronym called EAT, and I'll explain what that is. At the core of it, what I realized is this: when I feel that feeling of discomfort. Something's wrong. And I don't know yet. My, my meter, my barometer is not good enough to tell me if it's something really strongly wrong that I have to address right away or not. So with somebody like my wife, the moment I think of a weakness or I think of something that is um, just uncomfortable, I have to like throw it up on her. I just spit it up. And if she's not here, I'll text it. I'll just be like, hey, just wanted to tell you, blah, you know, whatever. And they're not always great things. They're often really uncomfortable things to talk about. And I mean... This might be TMI for some people listening, but again, I don't give a fuck. Um, I'm here to save to save some people in my life, and so maybe this would be something somebody needed to hear. My wife and I have been through a lot in our 17 years. Cheating on both sides, her sexual trauma before, 
me growing up on porn and not really knowing how to connect to women, like to create a real honest, intimate relationship between the two of us was pretty insane. So we have to talk about everything, but I'm a guy who can't talk about anything. So the path from, wait, you can't ask me that question. That's too personal to you're my partner. You're the person who's everything in my world and you get to see inside me. It's a massive bridge that you have to cross. But what I hear, Ashley, for you, and I, I don't mean to make this like a, this isn't a judgment on you. What I hear is that sometimes, sometimes you don't give yourself the permission to take care of yourself the way you need to because there's too much to do. You're too important. There's too much going on. You've achieved too much. There's, there's too much shit to get done for you to take care of yourself. And what your brain is doing when it's saying, just have a fucking drink is that's still the escape hatch for you. You're not, you haven't used it in 15 years, but that's still the escape hatch. And so for me, that's just not a question of should you drink or not. It's a question of like Ashley needs a four-day silent retreat where she actually connects with herself again and remembers what Ashley feels like, not what the general public viewing version of Ashley looks like. Well, said apropos of that, which is very, very accurate. I went to um, an eating disorder program in January for 30 days because that is exactly what happened. And my head was just all over the place and I was radically transparent about it. And it was incredibly painful. And, and, and you know, I it was, I was like ashamed, but not ashamed. I like vacillated between shame and no shame. I was like, Oh my God, I took my 15th sobriety in this program and it was incredibly powerful. It was at the, you know, my, my children are still recovering from mom being gone for 30 days, asking me if I'm coming back every time I go for to work. It was not without sacrifice. So I did that and I, I hear, and you're right. You're a hundred percent right. Because what happened for me was during COVID, the food the issues, which, you know, it's all in the same. I hate the word addict and alcoholism because it just, it, it refers to one, you know, part of it. It's like, no, my alcoholism goes into food. It goes into like, it'll go wherever it needs to go. It's it, it that well, ism. That's, that's not even the problem. That's the cure. Right, right, right. Exactly. It doesn't, it's not a good name for what's happening. And for me, I was like, oh, it would be easier right now to take a drink than to work on my eating issues because I know how to get sober and I don't know how to deal with this eating stuff. So long and short of it is all of those skills that we talk about, the radical transparency, all of that, I had to do that. And I have been doing that and coming home and transitioning back. And I've had to feel that like newness of it and that the, I've had to tell myself the percentage of days I've been doing well. And I've had to use all the moderation things you're talking about because I have to moderate with food, you have to. but I, did, I didn't have to do that with drugs and alcohol. So I'm learning a whole new set of skills that you're talking about as it relates to my food. It didn't really, that it didn't apply to my alcoholism, but it's actually, it actually applies to something that's much harder for me. Yeah, so yeah. I, and for me, it was I, around I, sex, right? I haven't, look, I haven't used meth in 18 years, right? Uh, I have right. Adderall though, because I do have pretty terrible, annoying ADHD and focus problems, but I've used it like, 30 times in 18 years. So that hasn't relapsed me. But I mean, I got emotional listening to you describing that because like, that's all I want for everybody. All I want for everybody is to just recognize that deep inside somewhere is still like that kid that just, just wants to be okay. And that it's not like it, it matters what method you end up using because it matters what works for you. 
But what I want to get everybody off of the train of is like, let's just drop all of our like collective egos. I don't need, I will say it to the moon and back. I don't need anybody to go to ignited recovery and find it as a successful method. My program, right? The hero program. I want everybody to find the thing that works for them. And the reason I'm so passionate and you're right, it's, it's there to cause noise. No doubt. Like we're here to just piss people off a little bit is because I'm fucking pissed. I'm pissed. Like not, I mean, first of all, I'm so grateful to hear that you, you were able to do this, but I'm sad that the tools and the understanding and the conversation wasn't in place for somebody 15 years ago to be like, Ashley, there's something deeper here. Like, let's, let's dive in. Cause the alcohol got taken care of. And he was like, Hey, cool. Ashley, the alcoholic addict is good now, but you know what it was? was some screaming going on. I, the screaming, I did the work. I did a fuck ton of work. And then I had my twins and I, and that upset the apple cart so intensely, not because, you know, I mean, because, because there was a lot of like physical pain, but it brought up childhood stuff. Like it, it brought up stuff I, I had dealt with. And that was a, I call it postpartum recovery because I my, I cellularly, like I, I literally changed as a human being after, after they were born. I, I suddenly became allergic to dairy, literally. Like, I mean, I changed physically, biologically changed as a human being and my recovery had to change. And I didn't know how to graduate it because I had done it a certain way. And so all of that stuff. So I, I really feel like I, I did the work to stay sober in my twenties, but my 30s is a whole other ball game because of what I do for a living, because my kids, because of, you know, all the expectations. But it's all, it's still it's still about shame and it's still about ego and it's still about all those things, right? Because in my head, you know, I can do anything. I can do everything. I'm told, you know, I grew up being told I could be anything I wanted to be, right? And so I fucking did it, except right? I did it. Anything I wanted to be that business, you know, I, I got myself into UCLA. I, I, I fucking did everything I wanted to. I got married. I had kids. I, you know, went to business school. Like I did it all, but, but no one told me that there was a cost to being everything. No one told me that part. Right. And no one told me that, that maybe being everything isn't actually what I what I needed and wanted and maybe all those things. And that was something I've had to discover because if I have 10 things in my life, I can only give a certain percentage. Like you're talking about, I can only give a certain percentage to each of those things. And when you add two little kids into that and, and I've only been driven by career and ambition and succeed. And then you add two little kids who just want to spend time with you. It changes internally right and so you have to use all those new tools and skills and i i struggled with you know i and i still struggle i i'm i'm getting better cuz i took that time and i reconnected to like what do i need who am i trying to prove that i'm good enough to i'm still trying i don't even everyone says i'm good enough but i'm but who am i trying to prove that to and there's that you know that piece but the the other piece to that and in my 20s there was a portion of time where I got really like serene and peaceful and I became really unmotivated. (laughs) And I found that to be like the fear and the need for approval got me to be what society believes is successful. 
and, or, you know, or achievement or whatever the thing is, the, 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 the letters, the, this, the, that it was, it's driven by fear and those needs. And when it's not there, I don't do it. And I found that to be incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, I love that you get to bring these lessons. Like you have the platform to bring these lessons to everybody else who needs to hear them, who let's just be honest in most, not all, but in most other surroundings and environments would just never get this. They would just get yeah. like, Hey, you got 30 days. You're doing well. Good luck. Go home. We work with your family. <laughs> have a good time, you know, right. um, or we'll see you Thursday for group or whatever. I just wish it was that fucking clean. I really wish it was, you know, like, we don't leave room for suffering. We don't. We we kind of we try to whitewash everything. We try to pretend. We the fucking Instagram and all this shit now. Just like all of us, always putting on our best faces. You know, Sophie and I. We just went to Tulum. It was the first time we spent time alone without the kids. We got three kids without the kids and without friends because we've had breaks. Where we've done a night or two with friends, but it was Sophie and I on a trip for three days, and um, I mean, it felt like a different world. Not only because we were in Tulum, but because it was just me and my wife just like waking up in the morning, doing what we wanted to do. So you're so right. And here's the difference, though. The question is, how do you balance instead of overweighing the success or overweight? Like, actually, happiness without motivation is kind of fine sometimes. It's okay. Like, <laughs> right. It'll come it's back. It's uncomfortable, though. Right? Yeah. It'll come back. Well, of course. But... So, so it takes us back to this conversation that we were having before, which is we don't grow from the status mm -hmm. quo and the comfort. We just oh. don't. So that's like the reason I'm fucking making noise is we're hurting people. We may not want to. I'm not saying we're doing it volitionally. We are keeping people on the outs because we want to feel safe. And what I'm saying, what I'm saying, and I'm trying to look, I have amazing conversations with amazing people like you. And then sometimes they're a little more tense and it's okay. And then sometimes I talk to people like Carl Hart who are like, hey, we should all take pills and, and like whatever. Like the conversations are varied. What I think we have to get in front of the world, not us. We're professionals. Like we'll handle our shit somehow. And we have a million tools and we have help and all that stuff. But I want to reach that person in the middle of Delaware that doesn't know what to do or the mom whose son is using pills again or, or the kid who's like, I'm using blow, but is it too much or not? Like I, I want to get in the conversations with the people who, if we're honest about it, the traditional way of doing things is just not on their fucking radar, but they're suffering. And I applaud you guys. Cause I remember, look, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, there was nothing large online at all anyway. So you guys were doing that. We were one of the first people to do that anyway. But your, um, actually, your Sinclair Method clinician is in one of our LinkedIn groups. And when I heard that, all I was was happy. Like the knowledge that you guys were able to say, you know what, if this thing works for some people and it gets some people to slow down or stop or whatever so that they can hear and get better, let's let it in. That's the magic. Because on the other side of each one of those clinical patient cases is a fucking human being with a family who's just in pain. And whether we like it or not, telling them what to do is oftentimes not the route to make them less in pain. What they need is a hug and somebody that they trust will actually have their best interest at heart. And once you accomplish that, sure, bring up abstinence, bring up moderation, bring up whatever you want. But the first thing we need is the empathy and the support. Yes. 
I agree. I agree. And, and here, here's how I came to terms. So I started to get, I felt started to get into the, some of the rigidity that you were talking about, particularly as a opiate addict around Suboxone. I started to get, I started to feel, you know, have, like I say, have a reaction to like, I don't know what this is about, but I'm having a reaction. Right. And, you know, I didn't do it this way. I started to sound like, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't get my, fucking Why do you yeah, get it? Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. I was like, I'm je- I think I'm jealous. Um, and so I, I started to get rigid about it. And I had this, I was, I, I spent a lot of time trying to understand different points of view, putting myself in the position. And I, I, I got it. Like I found the way in, which is, and, and it works with traditional therapy or uh, traditional treatment as well. If my, if one of my sons or both of my sons, if my son, if you told me, <laughs> He, he was dying of this disease and he could not get sober and Suboxone was going to save his life. Would I care? No. If you told me that my son needed to try a moderation program because it was either that he did the moderation program, he did, he went to Ignite, he did whatever, or he was going to continue to use I would have zero rigidity. I would have zero stance on what recovery is. I might think to myself, oh, yes, you know, I think this is what needs to happen. But I would do anything to keep my child alive. It wouldn't matter to me. I would have, you know, there, there what is it? There's no zealots in a foxhole or whatever the, the uh, uh, you know, like my, all of my belief system rigidity, if it was my child's life would go away and I would want only the thing that would work for them. And that changed my, that alone changed my view. Because if I could look at it from that perspective, what the fuck do I care how they, how they do it? I just want my kid to be alive. And that helped me to see it, see the whole thing differently. There's no ego in that. That hits so close to home because I was given a talk in Ohio, which is one of the states that was hit hardest by the opiate yeah. epidemic. And um, at the end of it, oh, if I cry on this, then it's your fault. Um, okay. At the end of the talk, I walk outside and there's a bunch of people that want to talk to me after. And one of them was this woman. She asked me, she's like, do you think it's okay for somebody to take Suboxone for heroin addiction? And I said, I I mean, first of all, yes, but also tell me more about what's going on. This woman had three kids. She lost two of them to overdose. Oh, my God. And now she was putting this third one on Suboxone. And people were telling her, that's a cop out. He can't. He's got to get fully sober. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Why are we even having this conversation? Oof. You already lost two. Like, put him in a fucking padded cell with Suboxone. I don't care what you have to do. Like, sure, bring him to my fucking house. I don't like anything. Of course, you give him whatever tool he might be able to rely on. Like, if his leg is fucking broken and he needs a crutch, do you want another crutch? Can I buy you a wheelchair? Like, the rigidity is just so devastating because it's 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 principle and ego. It's like, well, I did it, then he should be able to do it. You know. I don't, like I said it before, but I don't care. I just don't, I just want those people to survive. And like, I see every time I give a talk, every time I give a talk, somebody comes to me and tells me these nightmares. And most of the time they've already lost the people and they're just almost like looking for, they're almost looking for a way to just learn that they did everything. And when they, I hate saying this, but like when they learn that there was such a thing as harm reduction or they learn about these tools, all they do on the flip side is fucking beat themselves up. Right, right. You know, because I mean, I can't fathom. I've got three kids. I can't fathom losing one of them. And I I hear about it all the time from people. It fucking destroys me. Yeah. 
It's, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I honestly, the, it wasn't like this when I was a kid and when I was using people weren't dropping dead this, I mean, yes, people died, but it wasn't like this well, and raising and, and yeah, the and fen- mixing, yeah. all the mixing of like, it's crazy. And, and my raising children in this environment, I talk about this a lot is like it, people are like, oh, you'll, you'll be prepared. You'll blah, blah, blah. You know what to do. And I'm like, no way, man. You know, I don't, this is a whole new world that we're dealing with. People are just they do Coke once and it has fentanyl and that's it. Like nobody died from doing Coke once. I mean, that's what they told you in dare, but it just it didn't happen. And now it's this whole new landscape. And I think, you know, I think that if people are struggling, you know, people come from the, the 12 step model and you have kids, if you think about it as that, I, I really believe that most people will relax all things. You, your, your whole view, you know, your whole view changes when your child needs something or, or it's, it's the difference between your child living and dying. And I think that's a really, that was a very helpful tool for me to see that any of the judgments I had, they were picked up along the way. Some of my best friends are in AA and when their kids were struggling and the last thing on earth they were going to do was walk into a meeting, they called me and I'll just be clear about half those kids have no problems. Now half of them got sober in the rooms actually, but they needed a bridge. Yeah. They yeah. needed somebody to have a conversation that was not that, where somebody would just kind of come to their side and have a little talk with them. And again, I mean, we don't have to belabor the point. I don't, when I talk to my wife, like, I don't need, I don't need people to like what I do. I really don't. It sounds crazy because I talk about ego. Uh, I know you don't. I know you don't. The amount of you... ego that I had to let go of. I, I oh. like to be liked, but at some point I was just like, cause I went to UCLA and like at UCLA, the, the chronic disease model, the neuroscience, the pure neuroscience model of addiction is the only one that existed when I was there, genetics and, and biology. And I bought it and you don't buy it now. I mean, the level of environmental influence is massive. Um, I also, one of the things I talk about that is more aligned with AA and less with that is spirituality. But I, I consider spirituality as a connection to anything bigger than yourself. So like, I'm not religious, but I have a I have purpose. My purpose is to help other people, by the way. That's my purpose. But I need to be connected to something that is bigger than me. So I wouldn't consider it my higher power, my purpose, but my purpose is the driving force that makes me wake up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and go do my morning ritual. So by 7 o'clock, I show up the way I need to, to every day, and it's the thing that pushes me. And I don't know what biological explanation you give to that, but it's not genetics. It may be epigenetics and things like that. So... I use a kind of biopsychosocial plus spiritual model idea. And I think that different people struggle with different mixes of what's wrong with them. That's why we've never been able to isolate what addiction is, is it's not one thing. It's millions of different things that look the same. They look like somebody who steals and lies and uses alcohol and like hides it in the fucking shower. But one of them was raped as a child and can't trust anybody because he had low attachment. Other one had a great upbringing, but then got in with a group of people when they were in high school that just drank and used drugs all the time. And to fit in, they did that. Those I don't see those as the same people. Um, environmental influence and deep trauma, I think they're very different stories. And, um, and I think we have to respect that. And we have to, if, if I'm going to talk to Ashley, this I, maybe I don't know if this will make sense, but so my, um, my PhD was in psychology, but my two emphasis areas were behavioral neuroscience and statistics. So I dove heavily into math and statistics. And statistics are really nice to prove significant differences and that something does or doesn't have an effect. 
But what we miss oftentimes about statistics is that the whole job of statistics is to remove unpredictability or error. So what do we do in an experiment, for instance? We'll take a bunch of people, and let's say they're all cocaine users. And we'll give one group of cocaine users one medication, and we'll give the other one CBT treatment. And we'll say, which one worked better? And so we'll see how much cocaine they used at the end and some other assessments. And at the end, we compare the two groups. And we say, hey, the medication group worked better. It had a 8% or 15% re- greater reduction in using, right? Let's just say that's the results. Totally made up study, by the way. Don't go look for it. It doesn't exist. <laughs> I just made it up on the spot. So some people will be like, that study didn't show it. I'm like, it's not a study. I just made it up in my head. Um <laughs> And then we go and we say, you see, medication is more effective than CBT. But that's not actually what happened in the study. The study had 100 people in each. For some of them, CBT worked really, really well, and they got CBT, and it was really nice. For some of them, CBT didn't do shit, and they got CBT, and they were fucked. Medication worked for some people, and they got it, and they were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I love this. I never need to use cocaine again. And some people got it, and it didn't do anything for them. And there were more people that got medication for whom medication did something than there were people for whom CBT did something, and they got CBT. What we forget is when I come to treat Ashley, I'm not treating cocaine users who went to CBT as a group. I'm treating you. So I need to understand, does Ashley need CBT or medication? I don't give a fuck if one worked better for a group. One is going to work better for Ashley. And what we get, we get so wrapped up in statistics that are really nice. The way I explain it now when I give talks, statistics were great on macro. Macro understanding of addiction is great. I don't treat macro. Joey, Melissa, Jackie, and and Jennifer come to help with me. What am I going to do? Hey, which of these two groups do you belong to? No. And so, I mean, I'm sure you guys do the exact same thing at Lion Rock. Like the job of a good therapist is actually to listen to the client, yes, the information, and then apply the right method. But the system within which we work is one that has CPT codes and one that has standards of care and one that treats people macros, one that gives, you know, gives ranges of this, you know, there's a dosage of medication based on your age, not your weight or your history or any of those things. We live in a medical model, you know, a behavioral model that, you know, we try antidepressants, you know, we just, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on them. Just so experiment. Nope. Do we just experiment? We don't, you know, we don't do, um, you know, spec scans or any of it. So, so while you're right, we don't actually function in that model except in our heads. And so it makes sense that people would use those things on, you know, to try to group people because that's how you bill for it. I know. So right there, you hit on a couple of things. First of all, after running a rehab for five years, I swore I will never run a rehab again. Um, <laughs> Because now here's the funny thing. I've So our online program is coaching and education. It's going to stay coaching and education. And all the treatment stuff will be referrals out. And I don't want to be involved in that. And the reason is simple. Well, there are actually multiple reasons. One of them is, did you ever see the Social Dilemma? The movie about, yes. about like yes. Facebook? Okay. Yeah. Totally unrelated to what we're talking about. But they make a very important point that is really interesting. If the people that are paying you are not the people that you're serving, there's a conflict of interest. And when an insurance company is paying you, I don't know if anybody understands this or has ever thought about it, but the point of an insurance company is to pay as little of the money you give them. That is their stated goal is I'm going to collect as much money as I can from all the people out there. And then I'm going to pay out as little of it as possible. So what do they do? They deny claims. 
they minimize payments, they throw paperwork away, whatever the fuck they do so that they don't have to do the shit that you pay the money to do. In the meantime, you, Ashley, and your staff are there to help the person. But the true God is the the agencies that are paying you the money. So you're trying to help this person. You're like, I'm trying to help you, but they gave me $25. For $25, I can't give you a lot of help. So to date, and it'll probably have to change as we scale, but to date, I went direct to consumer on purpose. I made it dirt cheap, $43 to $200 a month. And I'm like, look, you give me the money and then you're my God. I'm trying to make it best for you. The moment I start taking money from somebody else who doesn't care about how well you're doing, but instead cares about how much money they get, we're screwed. Because, And I'm going to have to figure that out if we ever scale to that place. Uh, but you're right. And here's what I, I hope, Ashley, that we get to do. I hope that as this conundrum, I'll say, of, uh, of addiction nightmare continues, that we do get to go to the policymakers and we say, look, this blood is not random. It's not happening for no reason. Whatever it is, 30%, 40% of claims are just being rejected offhand. Um, too little money is paid for good work for people, which means that the people that you need are, say, you're supposed to be serving as the government are dying because we don't have the resources to help them. And it's a messed up fight, and it's a fight that maybe we don't feel like we should be having. But um, it is also the reality, and I applaud you guys. Out of, out of all the online providers that I know... I think you're the only one still to this day that I've seen that like does official outpatient online treatment. The rest of them either tell us psychiatry or they do tiny little pieces of the puzzle. And I know why, because it's a bitch. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and this, the insurance companies make it, you know, really painful, really painful and, and really difficult to provide services. And, you know, it was interesting. I was just thinking about a, a quote that you said you, I, I won't be able to quote it, but it, you talked about somewhere SAMHSA and how it doesn't describe abstinence in, in the description of addiction. However, when you are getting, if you are providing outpatient level of care and you are getting a um, a review of the case, the person that's reviewing the case is looking to see whether or not that person used. And if that person is using it, it is over the course of a period of time, at a certain point, they will call that a failure of treatment. And so and, and a lot of the outcomes and studies are based on abstinence. So you even though, and therefore tied to tied to research, tied to grants, tied to payers, tied to the whole system. So while, you know, moderation, this idea of another way, and why I, I'm so glad it's you and not me making all the noise, right? Because, because I, 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 I did it with online treatment where I made all the noise, online treatment can work and got all the shit for it. So I know that road, it is not fun. And so... I, I, you know, but it's some of this is, is payer model, right? Is getting, and, and what's cool is that you do have the, the academic background and influence background around talking about this from that perspective, which I think that people will eventually listen to. And there but are other, part, they're, they're really amazing people who have done and are doing incredible work in this area. I mean, Alan Marlette has passed, but he was at University of Washington doing harm reduction work. There's, um, Katie Witkowitz, who's like, honestly, one of my idols, um, and she's down at University of Mexico showing different patterns of relapse and how we need to start being able to be a little bit more sensitive to different people's um, responses. There's Carl Hart, 
who's leading the charge in a very different direction. And I think I'm not a very patient man. And so the reason I went this way is I don't really want to wait for the results. I want to see them in front of my face. But I know it feels different now than it did 10 years ago. And in 10 years, people like me are going to be the old foggies that are like, oh my God, you're still talking about that. There's a whole new way of discussing this. And I'm okay with it as long as we keep saving more lives. Because I I mean, I remember I was online doing a very different thing than treatment when uh, when i met you guys i was doing like treatment matching and nobody knew anything about online world so i i honestly hats off to you guys for getting this far um and doing so much because it was not an easy way you did it way before covid nobody did anything about online anything yeah covid was an interesting it was an interesting explosion for us but sure well i i truly i think you are um truly and and you know impressive and and I, I I really admire the work you do and I love that you let me push back on it and that we can have these fun conversations because I appreciate it and I think you know what's cool is that people there are a lot of 12 step you know type people are listen to what I'm saying because of my background and they're going to hear this and that was kind of why I wanted to have this conversation because it may open you know, again, may, may make other people who wouldn't normally get in, you know, in front of your material here, you know, have some, have an open mind. So, um, well, thank you you for, thank you for uh, being open to that. And I've always loved our conversations. And again, very impressed by what you guys have been, you and your dad have been able to accomplish. It's, um, it's just a new paradigm and it's really beautiful to see. And let's hope that as we, you know, as we keep trudging along, more and more new paradigms will come up that will help more and more people. And this idea of, is there one way or another will sort of be on the side and and we'll move to a place where everybody just gets free to explore whatever works for them. I look forward to watching that unfold with you. So thank you. Thank you you so much. Uh, Where can people find your information? Ignited.com and that's I-G-N-T-D.com is one of the big places. My name, adjaffe.com. We set up a website just for that. And then Ashley mentioned it, so I'll mention it too. The book is called The Abstinence Myth. Uh, and you can find it on Amazon or at theabstinencemyth.com. And your podcast, you do I do. I wife? have a, a podcast called Ignited. Okay, okay. Uh, I talk recovery and we do kind of like a Monday motivation and a Friday recovery meeting. Killer. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ashley. Have a great one. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.